everybody, Montel here, and thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And I am so psyched and excited to have the guests we have on the show today because we're talking about a really extremely important topic that all of you who are interested in cannabis should be aware of and become activists around. Now, imagine sitting in a cell for years, decades, or even life, convicted of an activity that's no longer even considered a crime. Well, while thousands of other people build intergenerational wealth doing the exact same thing you did to get busted. That's a situation that over 40,000 cannabis prisoners face today in the United States alone. And while countless others languish in jails and prisons around the world, The Last Prison Project is a nonprofit coalition of cannabis industry leaders, executives, and artists dedicated to bringing restorative justice to the cannabis industry. Sarah Gerson, is the executive director and general counsel to The Last Prisoner Project and board member Evelyn LaChapelle are both joining in today. And Evelyn spent five years in prison for a cannabis-related offense. Thank you so much, ladies, for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. I, 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 gotta, I don't know which one of you I really want to start with, but I think I'm going to start with you. Uh, Sarah, what made you decide to start this program? Well, so... Our founders um, were three veterans of the legacy cannabis industry, Um, one of them being Steve D'Angelo, who started the dispensary chain Harborside. Um, So each of our founders had been able to find success in the now legal cannabis industry. And they recognized that at the same time, they were able to build that wealth and profit from this plant. Others were still incarcerated, still sitting behind bars. Um, For my part, I had been working in the legal industry, um, but had a criminal justice background and had been working on record relief. So getting folks records expunged that still had cannabis offenses on their records. Um, One interesting thing that we've seen with cannabis legalization is it has actually expanded a lot of these tools for criminal justice reform like automatic expungement. Um, But when I met Steve D'Angelo and he told me about the vision for the last prisoner project, he touched on something that really no other criminal justice reform or cannabis industry group was focused on, which was the release of those still incarcerated. And I think there's a big misconception that with legalization, comes retroactive relief for those that are still sitting behind bars for cannabis offenses, but that is not the case. Um, So I really jumped at the chance to be a part of this group that was working towards solutions for those still incarcerated on cannabis-related offenses. You know, know, don't you find it though crazy that, and I was reading an article recently, and maybe Keith, who's my producer, if you can hear me, you want to send me, resend me that article right now. There's an article released recently about what's going on in California and what's going on in LA specifically. And, you know, uh, two years ago before LA implemented their adult use program, incarceration rate was still high, especially for people of color. But since it has been deemed legal in an adult use standpoint, incarceration rate went up for people of color. In Los Angeles. And I don't think a lot of people know that. And, you know, I mean, um, can you explain that at all? 
Again, this is another huge misconception I think people have that with widespread legalization, with a majority of states having some form of legalization or decriminalization, that we're no longer arresting individuals or putting people in prison on cannabis-related offenses. That is simply not the case. Um, now, three years in a row, FBI data shows that marijuana arrests have actually increased. Um, we've seen even in progressive cities like Los Angeles, like Manhattan, um, where DAs have come out and said, we're no longer going to prosecute these cases. There's a real trickle down problem to law enforcement on the ground that are still using marijuana as the impetus for interacting, particularly with our communities of color. Um, and we've seen, and it's recently of course been um, in the news that some of these most egregious examples of police brutality, of murder of black and brown individuals have been because police used marijuana as the reason for inciting an arrest. So again, even though it's legal, we still see A, that the criminalization is still occurring, but B, these disparities in who is getting arrested and who is getting sentenced to lengthy sentences for marijuana-related offenses is only increasing. And your last prison project works across state lines all across the country, is that correct? Yeah, so we both work nationally. Um, we work federally. We work with um, both Congress and the White House, as well as state by state. Um, we have a particular focus, of course, on states that have fully legalized. But again, um, particularly in those states that might have legalized for medical use, but not fully recreational or decriminalized. Those are really the states that we're still seeing huge upticks in arrests and incarceration rates for marijuana-related offenses. So absolutely, we work across state lines. And is that, is that uptick that you're seeing still running in the same direction that it was before legalization or even medical legalization, where you know uh, we, we know now to date, almost 80% of all the incarcerations of people for cannabis offenses has been of people of color and it's still is it still running around that same number absolutely and again um recent data the aclu earlier this year put out data interrogating exactly that question and looking state by state at states that have fully legalized of states that have just decriminalized and even in states that have fully legalized those disparities still exist and in many states it's actually increasing I'm going to come back to that and we're going to have a general conversation about why do you think that's happening? I just, you know, it's, it's, it, I think a lot of people don't want to admit the fact that this has been a slavery continuation tool that's been used by the Justice Department since, you know, they first made cannabis illegal back in 1937 with the Marijuana Tax Act. Most people don't even know that that's what happened. But I find it an abomination that right now today, especially when we're having all of the protests across this country for Black Lives Matter and, and, and justice reform, that we can't even take one piece of that justice reform and try to do something correct, which is really sickening. But, you know, I'm gonna, gonna go to bring Evelyn in. Evelyn, why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened to you and what brought you to the Last Prisoner Project? Absolutely, so for me in 2013, I was, 
convicted in a federal court in North Carolina to um, 87 months for depositing cannabis profits into my bank account. Um, and so for that, I received an 87 month sentence with four years probation. And of that 87 months, I served five years in custody in prison and I was released February 1st, 2019. Um, so it hasn't been that long since I've been home. Um, and I've come home to uh, industry that was just deemed essential during a pandemic after just giving up five years of my life for it. And so I'm was, was your record expunged? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Absolutely not. And there's no intentions of the federal government to uh, expunge it either. Um, when you're sentenced in a federal court, the only way to receive expungement clemency is through the uh, president of the United States of America. And that's for every federal inmate um, in this country. We don't have like a court system to go through. It must go through the White House, which it doesn't matter what president we have. I don't imagine any of them having that much time to sit case by case and individual by individual. And so that's the situation for federal inmates. Um, but the president wouldn't have to do the case by case. He could do a blanket executive order and just expunge every one of them in one fatal swoop of a pen. We know that he can do that. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think that until this particular president, until his, you know, Uday and Kuse, his two sons, you know, get into business and start making money, will we see any attempt at uh, him trying to do anything correct in his business unless he can put his fingers in it himself and make money? I don't think you'll see a change. And so I, I don't I don't expect one either. Um, I, I, I have some hope for the state level and maybe some hope for the federal level next administration. Um, but so to get to how I got with LPP last prisoner project, I was released in February and in June. Uh, my co-defendant Corvain Cooper, who was already working with last prisoner project, he's serving life right now in prison um, for pot. Um, and he connected us and I've been sharing my story, pushing the message and really just, uh, behind the mission of last prisoner project. Let's slow down just a little bit. I want to slow you down and back up. And I hate to take you back on a, on a painful part of the journey, but you know, talk about that bust again. Now you weren't handling cannabis itself, right? Not at all. You weren't touching the product at all. Never seen it, smelt it, or smoked it. So, I mean, what happens? A friend of yours asked you if you'd make a deposit for them? So Absolutely. you got caught up in a, in a money laundering, if you will. That's what they were probably charged you with, right? That's exactly what happened. I participated for nine months in 2008 from January sorry, 2009, from January to September. A friend asked me to deposit the funds into my account. Honestly, it was marijuana. I didn't really think twice about it. I'm doing a favor. Like, I just didn't consider the consequences because in California, marijuana just doesn't hold that heavy weight of, you know, drug dealing. And in 2009, marijuana was medically legal in California. Absolutely. Yes. And again, that's, a, that's also a bigger issue nationwide in the fact that we don't have any reasonable laws for banking. So it did make money impossible people were back then i can remember 2006 7 8 9 visiting friends of mine who i knew were involved in the medical cannabis industry in california and they were literally utilizing coffee cans as their bank 
right? Sand. So our, our Western Union, like, and so that's sort of how I got into it. Western Union charges so much, and they're like, oh, you know, we'll just put it in the bank and and do it that way. And I just didn't think that I was doing anything uh, worthy of federal prosecution. So was it a knock at the door? When did you realize you were getting arrested? I, <laughs> I wish it were a knock at the door. Um, no, it was 2009. I was involved for nine months. Um, you had just had a child then? I, I had just had a child October 2009, and which is when I just went, you know, I just went on with my life, had a child, got married, graduated from Loyola Marymount and started my career in the hospitality industry. So four years has passed um, when I'm, I'm stopped outside of my mom's house, sort of routine, but I don't have my ID on me because it's in the house. Like I had just come outside and they run my name. I have a warrant. There's a warrant issue for my arrest. And just out of the blue, I'm taken to jail and I don't find out for two days later. I, I sit in a jail cell um, in a holding facility for two days before I'm arraigned. And then I go into arraignment. First time ever being in a courthouse, ever being in trouble. And they tell me I'm facing uh, up to 20 years in prison. For something that you did four years earlier. From something that I had done four years earlier. Mm -hmm. I, 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 you know, I really want our listeners to, to get a sense of just from an emotional standpoint, what I, I can't imagine myself having have this happen to me, but I, what went through your mind when you're sitting there for first off, when they arrested you to begin with, did you have any clue that it was going to end up being a marijuana? No, I had no clue. And to be honest, when the officer approached the car, there was the smell of marijuana in the car, but it's legal at this point. Right. So I'm not concerned about that. I'm, I'm uninterested about that. So even when he takes me into custody, because it was a federal warrant, he didn't have access to what the warrant was. So all he tells me is it's ice. We automatically uh, imagine that that's immigration. And I know that that can be an issue for me. And so I go to prison, not at all knowing, um, or even considering it to be from the marijuana from four years earlier. I honestly am like, this has got to be a mistake. I don't know what's going on. And I can't wait to sue the hell out of these people because this is a mistake. And it right. turns out it wasn't. And that began the nightmare because I'm assuming, did you have a lawyer at the time? Did you have to use a public offender? Defender, how did you how did you go through the, the legal process? I was fortunate enough um, to afford an attorney. Um, my, my mother stepped in and I was fortunate enough to get an attorney. It doesn't, it didn't work, right? $35,000, I go to trial and he barely is awake during the trial. And so that played a major part, I believe, in just the system um, in the federal court system. So it's a year later. So now my, my daughter is um, has just turned four. There's a year of leading up to trial. I drop her off at daycare on a Monday. Um, trial starts on Tuesday. Trial ends on Friday with them finding me guilty of uh, three charges, conspiracy um, to distribute marijuana, conspiracy to money launder um, and structuring. And I'm taking I'm taken straight into custody October the 18th, 2013. When that judge when the judge, I guess they sentenced you that day. What was the sentence for for 10 years? 
the sentence was for 87 months, so seven years. Oh, 87 three months. months. Wow. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, when you hear him say those words, what did you think? I hit the floor. Um, when I hear them say guilty, I hit the floor. And my attorney then, the one who was paid um, to do nothing, uh, he, he, she's like, get up, you'll, we'll maybe get you out on bond. So I allowed them to take me into custody. Well, I don't allow them. It happens. Um, so I go into custody and I never hear from that attorney again. And then we have to hire another attorney um, to take care of sentencing. So I sit in county jail for 23 months waiting for sentencing. Um, county jail is typically, you know, a one month, two month stay. It's not meant to house you for that long. Um, but I sit there for 23 months waiting for sentencing. And then that's when I hear the 87 months. But I'll tell you the 87 months was a relief because what happens in the federal court system is after you're found guilty, you're then interviewed by the federal probation officer who then writes a report and recommends to the court system what they think that you should receive. And that lady wrote on her report that I should receive 24 years in prison, first time offender. What? 24 years is what she recommended to the courts for me. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there, I don't know, Sarah, I'm back, first time offender, you know, a new mother, who now has already lost, you know, almost full two years away from her child. And the, they give her 20, they, they were going to recommend 20, 22 years, 27 years. 24. She did. 24. recommend it. Mm -hmm. That's ridiculous. Is it not Sarah? Unfortunately, this is something we see quite frequently in these types of cases. Um, I have several individuals serving life sentences that are first time nonviolent offenders that were incarcerated over a marijuana related offense. Um, a big piece of this is due to the laws that came out of the war on drugs that we know really at their core were because of racial animus were used as tools to incarcerate our communities of color. Um, one of the main ones being mandatory minimums. Um, so a lot of times in these cases, as Evelyn articulated, although you could be a very low level person in a marijuana distribution operation, you get caught up with not just the distribution charge, but a money laundering charge, often a racketeering charge, um, conspiracy, structuring. And so all of those offenses compound to exacerbate these sentences. And often the judiciary feels like they're hamstrung by these mandatory minimums to give out extremely lengthy sentences. One other thing I'll touch on in Evelyn's case that we see frequently with female offenders are these conspiracy laws. Um, this is another product of the war on drugs that the impetus was really to be able to identify and charge the kingpins of these operations. But what has in fact happened with these conspiracy laws, and particularly for women, is that oftentimes you are, like in Evelyn's case, in some way tangentially related 
to someone that is involved in this conspiracy. Um, in Evelyn's case, you know, simply depositing funds in the bank account. Um, one of our other constituents who Evelyn actually served time with, Stephanie Shepard, really all that she did was have a relation with a man that was engaged in marijuana sales. Um, and that was enough to rope her into this conspiracy charge. And we see that so frequently that women by their association to men that are engaged in this criminal behavior get wrapped up in a conspiracy charge. And then because they refuse to give up the names of other individuals involved in this conspiracy, they're the ones that end up getting these really lengthy sentences. Meanwhile, the folks that are actually most engaged in the operations, because they're giving up names of these lower level individuals, are able to plea out to much lower sentences. So ladies, look, I got to take a little break, got to pay some bills, and then let's come back. I know, Sarah, you have a couple of cases that you want to talk to us about specifically, but I really wanted to continue addressing this topic because I think this is something that we, number one, need to get all these people who are out here so interested in cannabis trying to figure out how they can make a buck to understand that this is still going on and we need their activism to bring us to an end. I'm going to take a break, pay some bills, and we'll be back right after this. Again, thanks so much for tuning in to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And today's guests are Sarah Gerson, who's the executive director and general counsel to The Last Prisoner Project, and board member Evelyn LaChapelle, who spent five years in prison for a cannabis-related offense, here to talk about the, uh, the fact that right now we have over 40,000 cannabis prisoners languishing in prison in the United States alone, while we have an industry that's a burgeoning industry that's allowing thousands of people to make intergenerational wealth and 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 provide services and dry and jobs and collect big bank while we still have 40,000 people languishing in prison. This is really ridiculous. Ladies, thank you so much for being here today. So I want to come back. Uh, Sarah, you, you had a couple of cases that you wanted to talk. Corvain Cooper is one of them. Let's talk a little about Corvain. So as Evelyn mentioned, um, Corvain was actually Evelyn's co-defendant, um, but Corvain ended up receiving a life sentence for a nonviolent cannabis offense. As Evelyn mentioned, in the federal system, there is no opportunity for parole. So our only hopes right now for Corvain are either trying to get uh, resentencing through the judiciary um, or getting clemency from the president. Um, right now, uh, an active program that we're working on and um, Corbain has an attorney uh, assessing if this will be feasible for him is our compassionate release program. Um, COVID of course represents an urgent health risk for anyone that is currently incarcerated. The conditions of confinement make it impossible really to deploy the basic precautions that we're all taking to mitigate the spread of this virus. Um, so anyone that is incarcerated right now is particularly at risk of contracting COVID-19. Um, so that has also presented an opportunity for us to actually go back to these sentencing courts and try to get individuals out under the compassionate release statute that was actually expanded in 2018 under the First Step Act. Unfortunately, because Corvain is younger, um, doesn't have any you know, super serious chronic 
underlying health conditions, he likely won't be a great candidate for compassionate release. Um, so we are urging all of our supporters to get involved in advocating for Corvain while we present his petition for clemency to the White House. We have been working with the White House's clemency committee for months. Um, we have a package of petitions of these individuals that are serving life sentences that we will be presenting to the White House. And we really need the public support behind this. Um, whether it's at the state or the federal level, when you're asking for clemency, of course, this is a political act by the executive officer, whether it be the president or the governor of a state. And so they need to know that their constituency, the people that elected them, support these actions. So we need as many folks to rally behind us and rally behind Corvain and let the president know that this man deserves a commutation and that the public believes that no one should be serving a life sentence for a nonviolent cannabis offense. And nobody should be serving a life sentence for a cannabis offense, period, in this country if they're a resident of a state that's passed a law to make it legal. This is really absolutely ridiculous. Now, you know, um, I think, well, right, Kim Kardashian was able to get the president to sign a commutation for just one prisoner for a cannabis offense, correct? Yes. Um, recently, part of a coalition, including Kim Kardashian, was able to release a woman, Crystal Munoz, who was serving a sentence on a cannabis-related offense. Now, is uh, Corvain Cooper's, um, I guess, website people can go to, they can sign on. Why don't you give that out real quick? Absolutely. So if you go to lastprisonerproject.org slash Corvain, um, we have lots of ways that you can get involved in all of our cases, but in Corvain's in particular, um, like I said, because we have been able to garner a lot of public support for this, um, we feel really strongly that we can get this case through. Um, we're almost at 150,000 signatures on our petition to the president for executive clemency. So we're urging everyone to go on our website, sign that petition, get us over 150,000 so we can include that in our clemency packet. And again, give the website one more time and we'll make sure people have the opportunity to, to know where to go. It's lastprisonerproject.org. Um, and if you go there, you'll see a lot of information about Corvain. Um, he sits on our executive board. We have, again, all these ways you can get involved. So I encourage everyone to just go to our website, lastprisonerproject.org, and you'll find several ways to learn more about Corvain's case, get involved, and get involved in all of the advocacy campaigns we have going on. Well, you know, just so people, you know, because everybody's got an excuse. It's just like, you know, people are making excuses why, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Floyd should have been killed, you know, even though you saw the video. So let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, Corvain's case. Uh, he had two prior offenses that have been now reduced to misdemeanors. Were they federal misdemeanors or non-federal misdemeanors? So these were federal misdemeanors, um, but they again were for possession. And so this harkens back to the laws that I was pointing out that have led to these really extreme sentences. We talked about mandatory minimums. The other big one that was at play in Corvain's case are these habitual offenders laws and the federal three strikes rule. Um, and so you can really see again in these laws how law enforcement and our justice system 
has been using the war on drugs to incarcerate communities of color in particular. Um, Corvain, again, has never committed any act of violence. All of these charges are drug possession and you know, a minor role in a drug distribution charge. But because there were three federal offenses, that led to the judge being able to use this three strikes law that led to him getting a life sentence. It's absolutely just tell me a little bit about Michael Thompson. So similar to Corvain, um, but this is a case that's at the state level. So Corvain's case, you know, we often point out that he's from California. Um, you know, the laws are very different now in California. Uh, cannabis is fully legalized, but as Evelyn knows, they were actually sentenced, tried and sentenced in North Carolina because the cannabis was being shipped to North Carolina. Obviously, the laws in that state and federally are much different. Um, Michael Thompson is a really egregious case, I think, not just because he's serving a de facto life sentence. This is a man serving a 60-year sentence for a nonviolent marijuana-related offense, but he's in the state of Michigan. This is a state that has fully legalized marijuana, that the progressive-leaning governor was very behind the legalization of marijuana and building up a really robust economy for that state, and yet Michael Thompson languishes in prison there. Uh, as I mentioned, COVID-19 presents a really urgent health risk, and especially in Michigan facilities. Um, Michigan correctional facilities are becoming hotspots of the virus. Infection rates there are spiking. And someone like Michael Thompson, he's 69 years old, he has type 2 diabetes, he is at risk of this de facto life sentence becoming a death sentence because of the coronavirus. And, uh, and you know, Governor Whitmer seems to be relatively progressive. What has been her stand on him? I'm sure this case has reached her desk at least once. Yes. Yeah, so in January of this year, before COVID, we had submitted a clemency petition to the parole board and to the governor. Um, when COVID started to reach these facilities, we asked to expedite that petition in March. Um, we have had a whole host of individuals get involved in supporting this case. We've had you know, over 100,000 people make calls to the governor's office, calls to the parole board, write letters, show their support. We've gotten individuals like Snoop Dogg, Chelsea Handler to rally behind Michael. And yet it seems these cries are falling on deaf ears when it comes to the governor. Um, one thing that is really encouraging is since we have been able to really mobilize so many individuals to rally behind this case, we actually got the county prosecutor to come on to support Michael's clemency petition the prosecutor's office that originally sentenced Michael. And so that is extremely rare to see. And I think it shows you just how much the landscape has changed since Michael was sentenced over 25 years ago. Um, we've also gotten several state lawmakers to come out in support of Michael. So now we are really putting all of our eggs into the basket of getting the governor to see that everyone is in alignment, that this man should be freed, that it is truly the height of injustice, that he should remain incarcerated, again, facing potential death amidst COVID, while around him, this huge economy is built up in Michigan. And he, I mean, he has already spent 25 years in prison to date? 
Yes, he has spent over 25 years in prison. Um, and this is a man that he is such a benefit to his community, and that's evident. It's something that we noted in our petition before being incarcerated. He was active in his local NAACP chapter. He actually received the keys to the city of Flint, Michigan, because of his work with gang violence reduction and intervention. Um, and he's continued that trend during his time of incarceration. He has a nearly spotless record um, since he's been incarcerated, and he works with his um, fellow inmates to continue those positive community ties. He serves as a mentor to a lot of the individuals he's incarcerated with. Um, most recently, he and um, another individual he's incarcerated with organized a celebration of life for George Floyd. They had over 50 individuals participate. People were able to share their thoughts and feelings. Um, he raised funds so that they could have a special luncheon um, and share you know, their feelings on racial justice in this country. So that's just the example of the type of person Michael is. Despite suffering this incredible injustice, despite suffering for 25 years and still not being released, he's still so selfless. He's doing all that he can to give back to his community. And he's not letting this injustice detract from any way um, from the great person that he is. And I just hope that the governor and the parole board of Michigan can see that. You would think that, you know, I mean, especially since the governor is uh, literally on a short list of those potential vice presidential candidates, that she would look at this as a political opportunity and maybe err on the side of, uh, of Michael rather than err on the side of uh, who her running mate's going to be, who doesn't seem to have as favorable an outlook on cannabis as we would like him to have. So what about what's going on nationally? What, what is your organization, or how is your organization perceived nationally right now? So as you mentioned, um, it's an interesting landscape federally. Um, as a 501c3 organization, we focus on direct services. Of course, we engage in client advocacy and policy work, um, but we do not directly endorse or oppose any candidate for office. Um, but we do our best, certainly, to educate the public about um, what the candidate's positions are. And unfortunately, as you've alluded to, neither candidate for president has really prioritized either criminal justice reform or particularly cannabis justice, which I think, as you point out, is really at odds with not only the general public, but with progressive lawmakers. Um, I think most of the Democratic candidates for president uh, when they were in the running, had really robust platforms for criminal justice reform that included the legalization of marijuana because those individuals really saw the connection between um, ending the war on drugs, fully legalizing cannabis, and redressing the disparities within our justice system from policing all the way through sentencing and incarceration. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like either the current president or um, Vice President Biden really understand that this can really be a tool to address these disparities, unfortunately. And I'm, I'm going to come back to you, Evelyn. Uh, now, you know, you once you got out of jail and they let you out, you sought out and got your previous job back. Is that right? Previous job, different hotel chain. Mm -hmm. Okay. And 
when you you got a job, uh, I've told someone at that job looked into your background and then basically went in and said, hey, this woman's in busting for pot, get her out of here. And you got fired. That's exactly how it happened. I was on the job. I um, had been on the job for almost two months. Just really excited that life had I'd been released and now I'm getting right back in where I left off. And Human Resources called me into their office and told me that someone had Googled my name and this is what they found. And she slides the article across the desk. There's one article written about my case um, published by ICE. Um, it is definitely over-exaggerated. And so at that moment, I had an opportunity to explain to her what really happened. And uh, she asked me to pack up my belongings and leave the building. Um, now, the was that because she felt like you didn't give the information out when you were employed or she just didn't want you there? Well, there's there's two things that played into that. Um, California removed the are you a felon from the application. And so that gives us an opportunity to at least get before the interviewers um, to interview for the job prior to them reading that you're a felon on the application. So I get into the interview. All four executives ask me about my gap in employment, my five-year gap in employment. My response was rehearsed. I had already went through this process. Um, my personal life took a hit. I was unable to work for five years. I'm eager and prepared to get back into the workforce is what I told everyone until I got to the general manager who then asked me, what's the biggest mistake that you made in life? And I tell him that the biggest mistake that I made was not taking responsibility for my actions in a marijuana case. I suffered great um, consequences, but I'm ready to get back to work. From then, I passed the background check. Then once she realizes, um, once she is in possession of the article, she runs an additional three background checks that I pass. I pass all the four background checks. Why I can only account that it's a blessing. I believe it's because most people only run state background checks and not federal background checks. And so all of that hashed out and now I'm on the job and I'm, and I'm working uh, satisfactorily. And so she asked me to leave. So I think she was, there is the, I didn't know up front, but I also think that they just don't have space in their building. Their culture doesn't allow for people um, with felons. So now, are you employed now? I am employed now in the legal cannabis industry, and so I, it, it has all worked out. And that's got now that right there has got to just throw you for a loop. You you go to jail for something that now you can work at legally. It no, it it throws you for a bigger loop uh, than you can even imagine. Um, I came out extremely afraid of cannabis, not wanting to see it, touch it, be near it. I still run risk daily. I'm still on probation. So I still cannot be in the, uh, in possession or even in the room with the flower and the plant. So luckily I'm employed at Bertosa where we don't handle the plant in the office and on hand. And they have brought me on as their community engagement manager and just, I've now moved into a space where the cannabis industry as a whole, um, I feel like it owes me like this is my place. I sat down five years and I shouldn't be afraid of it. I'm no longer fearful of it. And I, 
I've come in, um, I've been embraced with open arms and I'm here to stay. I would never leave. Sarah, it's got also discussed you a little bit though, the fact that the majority of your clients are people of color and we have an industry that has literally been whitewashed. And I say that in a sense that the majority of owners of, of the businesses, people who are getting licenses, whether they are asked to have minority representation on their boards or in their, in their company or not, are normally not people of color. So I don't understand why there isn't more support for your organization across the board in the industry. Unfortunately, you're absolutely right. Despite a lot of, especially the newer states that have more recently legalized, prioritizing not only social equity, creating an equitable industry, but also reinvesting in the communities most harmed by the war on drugs, we really have not to date seen a successful social equity program. Um, of course, those programs are designed at getting those disproportionately impacted community members um, licenses and ownership opportunities. Um, there are so many barriers to entry into this industry, um, of course, particularly for our communities of color, um, from the regulatory hurdles, the hurdles you'll face if you have a criminal record, just having the access to capital that you need to be an owner. And so that's why at Last Prisoner Project, while our core focus is on release and those legal services, um, we do want to assist those coming out that, like Evelyn, do want to um, take what is rightfully should be theirs in this industry um, and have a position in this industry. Um, we focus on the workforce development, though. Um, but even there, you'll see those same disparities. And I think that goes back to, you know, this issue that Evelyn has brought up that even if you're in a state like California that has probably the most expansive ban the box law, and so you shouldn't really be restricted from entering an industry because of your criminal record, if that industry is cannabis and you're on probation or parole, you might in fact be barred from even being employed in the industry. And in other states, um, even more progressive states that you know say they want to prioritize creating an equitable industry, there are actually regulations that will preclude someone with a criminal record, even if it's a cannabis-related offense, from even being employed in the industry. So that's the kind of policy work and legislative initiative that we try to focus on to ensure that we're not just creating an industry that is equitable in ownership, but that at every rung of the corporate ladder in this industry, we're creating space for those communities disproportionately impacted by prohibition. What year, no, how many years has, has the, the project been in place? So we are actually just over a year old. Um, so there's certainly a lot of work to do. But I'm really encouraged at the progress that we've made just in that year. And I think, again, that speaks to this reckoning that a lot of uh, particularly state lawmakers are having that they recognize now how um, reforming cannabis laws can actually be a tool of redressing all of these disparities within our criminal justice system. And you now, you know, I, I uh, uh, complete disclosure, I've been working on a project uh, with uh, Snoop's uh, production company and COVID has kind of slowed this down, but we're working on a project where we wanna try to put some of these stories. And I would say like Evelyn's story, 
you know, put this in the public's view. I think that's one of the biggest problems right now is that, you know, I think it's one of the biggest problems with the cannabis industry is lack of education and, you know, lack of education at every single level, even in the, the, the dispensary level or in the, you know, to consumer level, we don't have enough education, but we don't have enough education when it comes to letting people know what's going on in the criminal justice system. We just don't. And we're going to have to do a better job of this or we're going to find us ourselves being faced with this for the next 20 years. Absolutely. I can't tell you how big of a disconnect there is between stakeholders within the industry and even just cannabis consumers. Um, so many people really believe that when we legalize, we let everyone out um, and that anyone that was incarcerated or was even experiencing the collateral consequences of a cannabis offense was no longer um, that we provided retroactive relief for all those individuals. That is not the case. It's not the case federally. It's not the case in any state when we're talking about actually releasing individuals. Um, and so there's a huge amount of work to be done around awareness and education. Um, so that's another big part of what we try to do at Last Prisoner Project. And again, if you go to our website, lastprisonerproject.org, um, we try every week to share a new story of someone that has suffered because of these laws. Um, and I think when you go and you look at, there are so many, unfortunately, devastating stories like Evelyn's. Um, but when you see the sheer number, but also the range of individuals, I mean, you really understand that these are not criminals. These are our community members, our fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers. Um, and there's so, I think anyone again, that is either participating in this industry or even freely consuming cannabis should understand that it could have been any of us, right? I mean, of course, if you are a person of color, it was much more likely that that person was going to be you that was going to experience the harms of these laws. But really any of the, us, even now, this plant is federally illegal. So even if you really believe, you know, I'm operating under my state legal laws, the federal government could at any time come and criminalize your behavior. And I think anyone, especially the white men that are largely the people profiting off of this industry, have to reckon with that and have to give back to these criminal justice reform initiatives. Have to. So Evelyn, what's next for you? Um, uh, there's a lot coming around the corner. I am in the process of launching my own uh, cannabis accessory line. I can't touch the plant and um, I would love to, you know, dispensaries, plant flower that's, that's out of my arena right now. And so I'll have some fancy kits coming with the grinders and the cones and the lighters. Um, it'll be called 87. So I'm, I'm building that brand. I'm building my community engagement role here at Bertosa. And there's just a lot. There's a pre-roll with Her Highness. So 2020, as rude as it has been to all of us, um, it has been a blessing to me. And just coming out of the criminalization of how that made me feel the damage that it that it caused me my daughter my me my really my entire family and i i it's it's i'm coming out of that um that's what 2020 has been for me just any, moving any, out of that. any thoughts on a book i want to do a graphic novel and so yes there's thoughts on it i just need a really good artist um there's there's so many stories that I could tell just from that experience. 
I read a lot of Brene Brown, a lot of self-help. And so in my head, when I tell the story, it's a, it's the story of like overcoming it. But then when I rehash sort of the moments, it's almost like an urban book. I mean, like there's, there's so many different, um, ways that I tell the story that I receive and internalize the story that I haven't been able to pinpoint the story that I want on paper. Um, but it's definitely, I'm definitely working on it. Definitely think about it. That's great. And Sarah, you know, um, any, any opportunities of getting in to talk to, you know, uh, the, our presumptive nominee, Joe Biden, or have you, is he on the list? Is there a way that you can get in and chat with them? Is your organization trying to do so? Um, there is definitely a coalition, I would say, of um, cannabis industry and and advocates um, that are working with the Biden campaign and with the Sanders-Biden uh, Justice Reform Coalition um, and certainly trying to get the folks around Biden to see, again, that, you know, this isn't just about boosting the economy, although that certainly is um, a tool we can use, especially amidst being on the brink of a recession. Um, but, you know, we are at a moment where this country is reckoning with this justice system, with policing practices, with law enforcement. And we know, we have the scholarship, we have the data to support that legalization and defunding the war on drugs can be a really incredible tool for our reimagining of our justice system, for reinvesting from tools of law enforcement to giving back to these communities that have been devastated by the war on drugs. So we are certainly doing everything we can to ensure that whoever the next president is going to be understands that and can work with us to push for true reform. Thank you. Well, Sarah Gristin and you know, Evelyn LaChapelle, thank you so much for being a guest today on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. I want to make sure I thank all of you for tuning in and listening today and make sure you understand that there is, <laughs> There's no reason why anyone's in this industry unless they are willing to step to the plate and support an organization like The Last Prison Project. Anybody who's making a penny, anybody who, who's getting relief from this plant should understand that that relief was built on the backs of people like Evelyn, and we need to be supportive of them as well as we can, as best we can. So thank you again, ladies, for being a part of the show today. And make sure you make sure you tune in to the next edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel.